We are so thankful to be able to be here today. We really enjoyed our time this morning in Sunday school and felt very welcomed by you. So thank you for that, and we're looking forward to the, the lunch hour, too. Um, I met Dr. Dion in uh, General Assembly, and we had some good time of fellowship there, although we had been uh, meeting online um, and different discussion groups and things in the past, but it's really a lovely blessing to have a like-minded pastor, especially when you're off on the far side of the world and a little more isolated. So thank you again. Um, We just read in Acts chapter 24 that Paul was sharing with Felix about righteousness and the judgment to come, and Felix got afraid, and he, he wanted to stop the conversation at that point. Well, we're going to be looking a lot more in detail about that very thing Paul was teaching from the book of Revelation. Um, it's about the future. People, people get anxious about the future, especially near election times. Um, people, sometimes they have a hope that they're going to improve their lives and the government, um, or they can be really anxious if the wrong guy gets elected and, and they just fear for the, the future of their lives. But the thing to remember is that even if you could let elect the best possible candidate, there are a lot of things in your life that will not change for the better. You still have to contend with old bad habits and temptations and sins. Any financial debts you have, they don't just disappear. Difficult relationships in your family or people at work, they'll, they'll remain difficult. But What will finally cause all things to change is when Jesus returns. Demons dread that day. But that's the hope of Christians. So there's good and bad news this morning, and we're going to read it in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Please stand with me to hear God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Please be seated. 
You saw the good and the bad news there. As we start trying to wrestle with this text, you need to understand something about the book of Revelation. There are 66 books in the Bible, and Revelation is one of the easiest to find, last book, but one of the ones people maybe know or understand the least about. Um, People have all kinds of views about it, and some of it they get from fiction books and from movies. So let me briefly tell you about the book before we hit chapter 21. Revelation records a vision that Jesus gave, some visions that Jesus gave to John, the last living apostle of Jesus. So you've all read the Gospel of John. Both the Gospel of John and Revelation, they do tell historical facts. But whereas the Gospel of John uses ordinary words to describe what Jesus did in his first coming, Revelation uses symbolism. And it doesn't just talk about Jesus' first coming. It talks about all of human history from the creation to the end of the world and the new creation that will come when Jesus comes back. So that's the kind of background of the text, that symbolism describing history. So this text tells us our future. Um, In Taiwan, where I'm a missionary, people have a lot of ideas about the ultimate destinies of mankind. Uh, Some of the Buddhists and Taoists there think that after a person dies, he might become another person, or he might become an animal, or become a god or a ghost. And people offer food and ghost money and sacrifices to their ancestors just to hope they can improve the future destiny of their ancestors that have already died. God revealed the real truth about the future destiny, and he had John write it down for all of us here this morning. You're going to see something in the text. You see something in the text today. Every human being who has ever lived, man, woman, boy, or girl, will face in your future one, either one of two ultimate and eternal destinies. That's what we saw. What are those futures? Some of the destinies are really, really good, and they're kind of summarized in verse 6. And some of the, one of the destinies is really, really bad, and that's summarized in verse 8. It's two destinations for man, and Revelation uses imagery to describe the two futures. So on the one hand, you have what? You have a spring or a fountain of life. And on the other hand, you have a lake of fire. So the spring or the fountain symbolizes something. It symbolizes that in your future, all of your needs in life are fully and ultimately and completely met. If you're thirsty, you'll be refreshed. Is there something you've longed for, something... You feel like you really need deep down in your soul, but it's still missing in your life. Those deepest desires will be met. And truly, your deepest need is for a relationship with God and fellowship with him. And to be called God calling you his son. And then you see more in verse 4, that 
in, in verse 3 that um, God talk about his dwelling with men and he will be with them and live with them. All those, the relationship break that we have with God will be taken away. And then you see the implications of that in verse 4. That all these other things, all these other problems, all these things that cause desire and longing and need will be wiped away because of our relationship with God. It's what you really need, not what you think you need, but what you really need will be satisfied and fulfilled. And there will be an inexhaustible supply of that fullness like a spring that never runs dry. Now, the lake of fire, it symbolizes something different. It's really the culmination of the curse for Adam's sin, our first ancestor's sin. So think of all the parts of the curse in the world that you experience now. Guilt, alienation from other people, physical sickness, misery, decay, death. What the lake of fire is describing is all of that, but it's magnified and intensified. It symbolizes that all your needs for life will never be met. In hell, a person, body and soul, will have a thirst that's never slaked. And he'll suffer God's punishment forever. An inexhaustible supply, not of the water of life, but of the curse. That's the future for some. You might think your life has bad and unpleasant things right now, but actually those bad and unpleasant things, God can use them as a blessing. He gives you a tiny taste of the hell to come. So they're a warning for the future. They teach us about the curse that's going to become full-bloomed in the future. They tell us what will happen if we persist in sin and unrepentance and disobedience that started with Adam. And what's more, they give us a longing to be saved. So the major question immediately, if you read this text, if you were reading this in your quiet time, the major question that arises from this passage is something for you to ask yourself. What is your personal destination for your eternal future. Life is not just about eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's not just about uh, don't worry, be happy. You've heard that song. We can't say like so many movies say, death is just another part of life. No. Hebrews 9 says, just it is for man to die once and afterwards face judgment. Our scripture passage today, you see that the stakes are so high for what we choose to do in this life. Much more important, kids, than the kind of how hard you study for high school to see what kind of college you get into. And the thing is, which eternal end that you as an individual human being will experience depends on something. It depends on how you respond to Jesus Christ in this life. How you respond to what Jesus did 2,000 years ago at his first coming determines what will happen to you in your future when Jesus comes again. There's a corollary to that point. That means which end that your neighbor will experience is not defined by how friendly relations you have with them, how much they think you're such a nice 
Christian couple, and wouldn't they like it if all other Christians were so nice like you? It's not on how nice they are either, but whether or not they hear the message of Jesus' first coming and how they respond to that message. The implication for you if you love your neighbor, as Jesus calls us to do, is what it says in Romans 10. How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? So it's really important we look at this passage in more detail. We need to explain it to others. Who are the group of people who will face the lake of fire? What's the good news of how you can escape that lake of fire and get to the fountain of life? What's so good about that future of the water of life? As you look at this text, you actually see what's the content of evangelism and and the goal and mission for evangelism and missions and actually the motivation to do it. Let's, let's start with verse 8. Look over that list there. This, these are the things, the kind of people that will face the lake of fire. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a representative list. Cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. People in America today think that Christians, look at them, and proudly place those labels on other people. And that they start hating those people because they place those labels on the people. And, and they think that Christians look down their noses on other people. And so people stay away from Christianity, and if they find out you're a Christian, they don't want to talk to you long enough for you to be able to, help, to tell them about Jesus. The sad thing is the reality is the complete opposite of their perceptions. Christians are the ones who look at themselves and see the sin in themselves. And they look at the sin in other people, and the desire in their heart is for them to be rescued just as Christians have been rescued from that terrible future. You notice that God doesn't uh, list sins like murder or idolatry, he puts a label on people, murderer. He does put a label on people because he's describing people who have the sin is still on them. Their guilt has not been removed. That's the point of using this way of talking. Sin is not some kind of abstract thing but it's more literally like chains of a slave that mark you as a slave and that are going to drag you towards your ultimate destination in slavery. It's a concrete thing. So that leads to another question. Do you think anything in this list describes you? Usually a human being will answer, no, that's not me. The non-Christian says in his heart, as I did when I was a child. I'm not one of those bad people. And so they say, I don't need Christ. I don't need someone to die for me. In Taiwan, um, they translated the Bible, and one of the words they used to represent sin was also a word that normally is associated with the word crime. 
And a lot of people, when they hear about sin, they think, I'm not in jail. I'm not a criminal. And they don't realize that although we might be free and obey the civil government, we've all violated God's law. We need to hear the message from the book of Romans. No one righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Your neighbors need to hear those words, not just Jesus loves you. Um, There are very few Christians in Taiwan and very few churches in Taiwan, but the churches that are there, a whole lot of them have big old signs in Chinese characters that say Jesus loves you. People certainly will not turn to Jesus unless they know about his love for them. But even more, they will not turn to Jesus unless they know their need for him. Otherwise, they might just think of Jesus as one of those old hippies on the side of the street, you know, in the afternoon giving hugs to the people that walk by. And you might think, oh, that was a nice hug. But then you'll think, that guy's a little weird old timer from a different era of history, right? That's how they will think of Jesus if they don't know their need for him. The Christian is the one who looks at the list of sins and thinks, that's the kind of person I am in my sinful nature apart from Christ's grace. They said, I need what Jesus did at his first coming. The Christian is the one who says, my sin, it's so serious. What I have done. The Christian says, there is no remedy that I could turn to except that someone else would face the punishment for me and endure that future lake of fire in my place. That someone would cry out on the cross, I thirst, so that the Christian can have their thirst satisfied from the well of the waters of life. The Christian cries out, take this guilt away, Lord Jesus. If you find out you have a cancer tumor, you go to the doctor as soon as he tells you and say, when can I schedule this operation? Cut this thing out of me. Um, do you ask Christ to do that with your remaining sin in your life? If the guilt of your sin is still on you, and you you then are def- are you are defined by your sin. You are the hater and the adulterer. You are the self centered, self righteous hypocrite. You are the idolater. Not only does it define you, but sin is your master. You think you are free, but you are a wretched slave in chains. Try to stop sinning on your own strength. It doesn't work. Like a dog that returns to its vomit. Sinners keep going back and doing the same evil because they're under sin's control. The future for people who insist that their their sins are not so bad There's only one conclusion, is that they will pay for their sins themselves. The curse, full-grown in its potency and inexhaustible in its reach. That's what we read about in verse 8. Christians look out at other people. They remember they are freed, and they see slaves around them, and they want those frees to be set free the same way that they were set free. The greatest emancipator was not Abraham Lincoln. It was and is Jesus Christ. He raises people 
from the dead to life, and he raises them from spiritual death to eternal life. So anyone who rejects Jesus will have to face the eternal punishment for his own sin described in verse 8. If you want to read more about it, go back in Revelation chapter 20. So you see, God is just. He can't overlook sin. If he did, he would not be God. He's not some kind of Santa Claus in the sky to be used and abused for your own pleasures and all the goodies you can get from him. That's not God. And because God is just, people will have to face the lake of fire and sulfur, a fire that's never quenched, it's unending, and it's called the second death. Kind of a a tough note to end on when you're reading a scripture passage for your Sunday morning. There is no coming back from that place. That judgment is irrevocable. And I plead with you this morning, you need to seek the only way to be free of the guilt of your sin, and there's not much time left. Turn with me briefly to the first verse of the first chapter of Revelation. He says, in the first verse in the first chapter of Revelation, to show what must soon take place. And then you don't have to turn there, but in the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus says, I am coming soon. You notice the common word about the whole of the book of Revelation, the word soon. Jesus is coming soon. When he comes, it will not be like his first coming. When he came to give salvation to sinners and to earn it by living a righteous life and offering himself and dying on the cross, instead in his second coming, as Paul talked about to Felix, it will be for judgment and justice and the destruction of all evil. And when the book of Revelation says Jesus is coming soon, it could mean he could come at any time. From the point that was written down and shown to John here on out after, he could come any time. Young folks, listen to me now. When you're young... I don't have many, I don't see many college students or teenagers. I have some, some even younger, so you might not even think about this yet. But when you're young, you look in the future, and there's this life out in front of you. And there's this temptation to think, I'm going to deal with religion later. I'm going to deal with Jesus later, um, so I can live the way I want now. Thing is, there is no guarantee that there will even be a tomorrow. Jesus might come tonight, or you might be in a car driving home and get hit in a car accident and die. A lot of people think of John Calvin as a you know great theologian, but he was maybe first and foremost a pastor. And there's a there's a little book he that was republished called Truth for All Time. I've, very highly recommend it. It's put out by Banner of Truth. Good font, easy to read. There's a section in there where he's exhorting people. And he says this, We must call to mind that this present life will not last. Everyone should think about that. It will not last and it will soon be over. We should spend our life now, spend it 
thinking about immortality. The main care and concern for our life should be to seek God. We should long for him with all the affections of our heart and not find rest and peace anywhere except in him alone. That's what's most important in life. That's what young people you should seek out of your life to do with your time more than anything else. And our text today tells you how to do what John Calvin urges, how you escape that terrible future of verse 8. So back in chapter 21, verse 7 kind of describes the people who escape, and verse 6 describes how they escape that future. Verse 7 says, him who overcomes, or the overcoming ones, they get to inherit eternal life and all good things of life instead of facing judgment. Now, don't misunderstand the phrase, the one who overcomes. This does not mean that you can earn eternal life if you, in your own strength, defeat sin and evil, live a clean life, accumulate righteousness. That's what Buddhists in Taiwan think. That's not what it's saying here. Actually, a lot of people in the South think the same thing. Um, years ago, I hired this carpenter, this old carpenter, to build some steps down a, down, down a slope. And as he was building those steps, um, I asked him some questions. And there are some questions you can ask to get into a gospel conversation. But one of them um, from Evangelism Explosion is, if you, if you were to die tonight and you face God's judgment and God said, why should you go into heaven? So I asked him the question. And you, you'd be surprised. There are a lot of ways you can slip that in in your conversation and it not be, like, awkward. It would, it would just naturally flow to there. The more you practice, the better you'll get at it. So I asked him that question, and his answer was, I, get, I bet you can guess it. Well, my good things outweigh my bad things. So many people around you, you meet every day, are going through life. They've been in the church culture, but that's really what's in their heart. They've never discovered their need for Jesus And they have no hope of salvation in their current state. And they need to be brought to the gospel. And it must come out of the lips of Christians around them like you. That's not what the word overcoming one or he who overcomes means in our passage here. You've got to understand the context. Revelation was written at a time when Christians were heavily persecuted by the Roman Empire. Jesus is calling them the overcoming ones because that's their identity instead of sin defining them. Jesus is telling Christians, despite all the suffering that they're facing, their future is secure. They'll be the ones that have the victory in the end. It won't depend on them. It'll depend on Jesus Just like Romans 8.37 talks to Christians who are undergoing persecution and hardship and famine and danger and sword. And it says, no, in all these things we are overwhelming conquerors through him who loved us, through Jesus. See, the overcoming ones have a personal relationship with Jesus. They're the ones that are loved by Jesus. And they're the ones that responded when Jesus called out 
Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So how do you become one of those people who have a personal relationship within Jesus? Verse 6 describes it this way. The one who is thirsty, Jesus says, I will give to him freely from the water of life. I, um, I was downtown in the university in Taipei, the largest university there, and one summer in Taipei, Taiwan is just really hot and humid all the time. But um, in the summer, it's particularly hot and humid. So I was down in the middle of the university on a little square, and there were some American Christian college kids standing there on their summer break with these big coolers of lemonade, and they were handing out the lemonade to people passing by, and they were trying to make connections to invite them to a Bible study. You'd be surprised. There are quite a few people who would not take that freely offered lemonade. But if you were really, really thirsty and you didn't have anywhere else to go to get water, you would take that lemonade at that point. Ice cold, free lemonade. Someone who is thirsty feels the need for water. And as, as the imagery Revelation is using here, if you are thirsty, you know you need something you do not have. You know you need righteousness, but you're a sinner, and you need a savior. You long for change. You long to stop doing the bad things that you seem to keep doing. You are thirsty for righteousness. That's the image being given here. And that is the evidence that someone who is really a Christian God has given them a new and soft and humble heart. Listen to the way Apostle Paul's heart has been changed and emptied of pride as he looks to his past accomplishments. He says in Philippians, Everything that was to my credit I now consider loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith. I have a serious question for people who have grown up in the church. Are you hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of Christ, or have you grown up self-satisfied? It's a way to test your heart. Jesus, to those who are thirsty, he says he will give freely. It's a free gift, not relying on our own works. Um, I named my oldest daughter, Faith, and my second daughter, Charis, which means grace. Um, And it both comes from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Does someone know it? Want to say it? Come on, somebody's got to have memorized that. No one wants to say it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. If you realize your sin and your need for forgiveness... And if you look not to yourself and your self-improvement the way they do in, in East Asian religions, come to Jesus. It's not the healthy Jesus came to save, but he came to save the sick. Not the righteous, but the sinner. Jesus paid the penalty and experienced the lake of fire when he died on the cross so he could freely offer salvation to us who believe, just like he said in, in uh, verse 6. If you cling to your works as if to buy an entrance ticket to heaven, 
on that judgment day, Jesus will not give you anything. He will say, depart from me, you evildoer. But to him who is thirsty, Jesus gives freely the water of life. It's eternal life. It's perfect life. It's, don't forget, it's a life with God. Um, people don't understand this. You know, you know the Caribbean islands, they, they call them what? Paradise, right? They kind of have this idea that you can live in a paradise. They want a paradise without God where you live in comfort and ease on your own doing what you want. What they don't understand about the Garden of Eden is that it would not have been paradise if Adam and Eve could not walk with God in the cool of the day. It's not paradise where God is not. And that's why verse 3 talks about the dwelling of God being with men. Jesus describes that life in verse 5. He uses a different phrase. He says, I am making all things new. We like new things. Um, Some of you maybe are excited to bring home the latest iPhone, although 7, I hear, is not not that cool. But I hear 8 might be better because it's like all glass. That's the rumor anyway. But you bring it home, and how soon before that feeling of newness fades? If you're single, you get, and again, there are not many people that age yet, but you get excited to meet a new boy or girl. But then, as the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt, or you could substitute boredom, right? The world grows dull. And as verse 1 says, it's passing away. And actually, that's okay. Hold on to that feeling of how the world just doesn't quite satisfy because that way you won't hold on to the world. That feeling of tiredness and, and dullness of the things around help you to long for the real new that stays new. That will point you to what you need, really. When Jesus comes back, he will make this world and your life new. All your mistakes and regrets will be removed. All your physical and emotional scars, all the relationships that have broken down over time, they will be made new. Think of a little, think of a little baby. <clears throat> so, a lot of people have that experience here. You'll touch their cheek. It's so smooth, right? No rough spots, no wrinkles or scars. Imagine if your own skin could go back to that state. It will. You will get new resurrection bodies when Jesus returns. And this whole world, all the scars and messed up stuff and extinctions and everything, this whole world around us will be made new and changed too. In that future our experience of life will be incomparably better than the best we experience now. In Taiwan, there's a department stores, and they sell some of the stores, they sell perfumes, but it's not like in the bottles already. They have this store where you can mix your own. So there's all these extracts and essences. And this, what they do is they get scents from a whole field of flowers, maybe, you know, in southern France or something, and they distill it and cook it up and distill it until all of those flowers are 
concentrated into essence in a tiny little bottle. And then you can mix what's best. And it's so fragrant and strong, extracting those smells. What if you could do that with your experiences? You know, take all the goodness you've ever experienced in this earthly life, all the good smells, good tastes, all the good days, beautiful scenes, lovely songs, encouraging fellowship with friends. What if you could bottle it all up and distill it like a perfume? Well, when you meet Jesus a second time, when he comes again, when we're in God's presence dwelling with us, even if you distilled all the essence of good you ever experienced in your life, it will not compare to meeting Jesus face to face. Actually, in the new world, every second, every single breath will be better than all the good experiences experienced by every single person who has ever lived in all of human history. That's what Jesus means when he says, I am making all things new. And so our troubles, as those Christians were facing troubles in the Roman persecution to whom this book was first written, in all of our troubles now, God wants you to be encouraged because of the future that he's revealed here in Revelation. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. In verse 6, Jesus says, it is done. That future is a certainty for those who believe and are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Don't lose heart. Jesus has a good plan for you this year, no matter what happens in the elections, and next year too, and when you're old, and when you're sick, and when you're on your deathbed. Jesus will make all things new. Don't you want that? And how can you not offer that future to the people around you by opening your mouths to speak to them? Let's pray. Lord God, we cannot see you, but we thank you for your word. Please help us to see and believe in your word that you've revealed to us and make it define our lives and change us. Lord, we lean on you through all of our trials in this life. Lord, give us the hope of that future you have revealed here. In Jesus' name, amen.